0: Let's pray. Father, I do pray uh, just what we're just saying, Lord. You would show us Christ. God, reveal your glory as I preach your word. Exalt your holy name in the heart of every person here. I do this for your glory. God, I consider it such a privilege to get to open your word right now. These words that are by you. And to just glory in you, God, as we read your word. Thank you, God, for taking broken sinners and giving us your word, God, and allowing us to know you. God, I just ask you that you would do that. Allow us to know you, Lord. We need you during this time. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so most of you know that we're, on, we're in a study of Mark right now. Uh, we're just going uh, section by section through Mark. Last week, Dustin taught uh, an introduction to the book as a whole and also did the first eight verses. So as you guys come along and, and study this alongside us, if you weren't able to get a hold of that introduction, I would encourage you to go online and listen to Dustin's introduction to the book. It's very helpful for the rest of your time studying Mark. Uh, Let's read. The section that we're on today is verse 9 through 13. So let's read the passage. We'll go from
1: there. Verse 9. It came to pass in those days that Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan And immediately coming up from the water, he saw the heavens parting and the spirit descending upon him like a dove. Then a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Immediately the spirit drove him
0: into the wilderness and he was there in the wilderness 40 days tempted by Satan and was with the wild beast and the angels ministered to him.
1: So what we have in this section is we have Jesus's baptism. And Jesus' temptation, verses 9 through 11, describes Jesus' baptism. And verse 12 and 13 is Jesus' temptation. Now, the other gospel accounts give a lot more detail. So Matthew, Luke, you go read those, give a lot more detail about these two events. Uh, What Mark does, that doesn't mean that Mark is neglecting details, but Mark just gives these hard-hitting, well-driven points
0: that just show you the greatness of Jesus, so that song was right up uh, right up my alley as I was thinking about my aim here today, that Christ Jesus would be exalted, because I believe that's what Mark's doing right here. Um, imagine,
1: you re- imagine reading Mark 1, 1 through 13 with no prior knowledge of Jesus. You don't know anything about him. You start reading in Mark chapter 1, in the first verse, you hear, this is the Son of God. This is Jesus Christ. This whole book's about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And then you get the next... Verses, verses two through eight, and you hear about John the Baptist, and he's talking about one who's coming, and he says, "I'm not even worthy to stoop down and loose this one's sandals." He's mightier than I. So you start learning about who Christ is, and you come to the passage that we're in today, verse nine through thirteen, and you see Jesus' baptism and temptation. We're going to learn a lot about Him. Um, What I want to do now, I want to start off. If you're on the front side of that sheet, we're just going to go quickly looking at the plain sense just the plain sense of what these verses mean we're going to go phrase by phrase I've got the phrases actually listed out for you there on your sheet we're going to go phrase by phrase here's some things you can know from the front end Jesus this is the beginning of Jesus's ministry and he's about 30 years old you know that from Luke chapter 3 so this event is the first public public uh, event or public uh, putting forward of Christ right here and he's about 30 years old and it's the beginning of his ministry. Okay, so let's start with that first phrase in verse nine. It says, it came to pass in those days. So it gives us a time frame. When did this stuff go down? It came to pass in those days. This happened at the peak of John the Baptist's ministry. So think about John's ministry. Think about his fame, as Dustin preached on last week. Think about John's fame right now. Think about the effect that he had on the people. Multitudes coming to John to be baptized and confessing their sins. Think about John's focus. There's one coming after me who's mightier than I. And then right at that moment, Jesus steps onto the scene. Jesus' herald, he's heralding the king that's coming. Jesus' herald has already spoken about him. His messenger has already spoken about him. And now it's time for John the herald to decrease and it's time for Jesus to increase. John the Baptizer had blazed the trail as Jesus' forerunner, but now it was time for Christ Jesus to be revealed and exalted. He steps on the scene right here in verse 9. Then it says, next phrase, that Jesus came, the long-expected one. Okay, from way back in Genesis all the way through the Bible, all through history, the one that was expected to come, the Messiah, the Christ, he came. Okay, he's here, he's about to make a public. Have a public revealing. He's coming to make his first public appearance. Next phrase. He came from Nazareth of Galilee. So Jesus comes from a place called Nazareth of Galilee. Nazareth is an insignificant town, and it's in a hated region called Galilee. Nazareth was the place that Jesus was brought up. We see that in Luke 4 16. He says he was brought up there. And it's just an insignificant place. Even Philip whom Jesus dubbed to be an honest man, when Philip heard that Jesus of Nazareth was a Messiah, he said this, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Just an insignificant town. He's from the region of Galilee, a hated region. In Isaiah chapter 9, this region is called Galilee of the Gentiles. And the Gentiles by the Jews were considered to be unclean. So this is an unclean place. And also in Isaiah chapter 9, it calls it the land, the land of the shadow of death, this unclean place, Galilee, the land of the shadow of death. When the Pharisees heard about Jesus being the Messiah, they derided Jesus and they said this. No prophet has arisen out of Galilee. John seven fifty two. So he's in this, from the insignificant town in a hated region. Next phrase. And was baptized by John in the Jordan. So think about John's ministry, okay? Multitudes of people coming out to him in the wilderness. They're hearing his preaching, his preaching of repentance, his preaching of one who's coming after, them, after himself. Multitudes of people are coming to be baptized and they're confessing their sins before him. Just confessing their sins. And here comes Jesus. Imagine it. The one that he's been heralding steps up to be baptized by, by John the Baptist. So he says, there's one coming after me who's mightier than I. And then that one steps up and steps up to be baptized by John the Baptist. It's amazing. Okay, verse 10, next phrase. And immediately coming up from the water, he saw the heavens parting. The ESV says he saw the heavens being torn open. That word, the heavens parting or the heavens being torn open, That word is in Greek, schizo. It's a powerful word. It means he saw the heavens ripped open. Okay, this is a powerful event that just happened. Can you imagine this? Jesus, John, all the multitudes there on the banks of the Jordan River, and they see the sky ripped apart as Jesus comes out of the water. He's baptized, sky ripped open. This would have been amazing, okay? Isaiah's prayer is answered right here. What did Isaiah pray? Isaiah 64 1, he said this, Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains might shake at your presence. The heavens rend, they're rent, they're ripped apart, and the Spirit of God descends. This tells me, what does this tell you? You've you read the passage. Sky rips open, the Spirit of God descends. You ever seen it on, the, at, on a movie somewhere? You ever seen this event? They try to picture it on a movie. And it's just this cute little dove that just kind of pops on the show. It's just a cute little sweet moment. It's not what I'm seeing right here. I'm talking about skies ripped apart. Spirit of God descends. Okay? I think that's what you ought to get out of that. Heaven's ripped open. Spirit descends. A voice comes booming out of heaven, out of the rip in the sky. 400 years of silence publicly interrupted with force. Skies were ripped open. Next phrase. And the Spirit descending upon him like a dove. So the heavens are torn apart and the Spirit of God descends upon Jesus. This would have been an awesome moment. Can you imagine this? Jesus sees the Holy Spirit descending out of heaven. John chapter 1 says, John says it, John said, I saw the Spirit of God descend out of heaven and remain on him. So Jesus sees it. John sees it. The multitudes see it. The Spirit of God comes down visibly. The way it says it in Luke 3, it says, it says that, that the Holy Spirit descended in bodily form. He descended. You could see this. This was a, a visual descent. Everybody, I, the prophecies, they would have seen with their eyes the prophecies being fulfilled like Isaiah chapter 11. Listen to this. This is 11 verse 1. There shall come forth a rod from the stem of Jesse. That's Jesus. A rod from the stem of Jesse. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon Him. The Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon Him. And here's these multitudes and they see the Spirit of God descending. They see this prophecy fulfilled. Now, it does not say that He descended as a dove. It says He descended like a dove. Meaning the descent of the Holy Spirit was like the descent of a dove. Resting on Jesus, like Isaiah 11 says. Now, was the Holy was the visible, whatever they saw, was it in the form of a dove? Maybe. I don't know. But here's what I'll tell you. This think about what glimpse you're getting into history right now, okay? This glorious glimpse into history. Just imagine it. Okay? You see this, you just saw the heavens ripped apart. The Spirit of God descend in visible form and then, and then a voice come booming out of the rip in the sky. Now imagine you're Mark or Peter and you're trying to write about this event and describe it. This is glorious. It's amazing. It'd be hard to describe. But what you can take away is this is an incredible moment. And it displays the power of God as the heavens are torn apart. And it, and it displays the gentleness of God as the Spirit of God descends on Him like a dove. Next phrase. Then a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. So the heavens have been torn apart. The spirit of God has descended upon him. And right here it says, God, the father speaks audibly from heaven. Can you imagine the multitudes in their eyes? They see John the Baptist on the banks of the Jordan. They see John the Baptist preaching about who's one who's coming, who's mightier than he. And then he steps up, and they're all amazed, okay? Because John the Baptist made it clear when he stepped up to him. We'll see this in a minute in Matthew 3. When he stepped up to John the Baptist, he said, No, no, I should be, you should be baptizing me, and you're, and, and you're coming to me? So they knew this was the one. This is the one he'd been preaching about, and their eyes are on him. And then he comes up out of the waters. Can you imagine their eyes lift up as they see the sky ripped apart? And then their eyes follow the descent of the Holy Spirit onto the Son of God. And then their eyes, maybe they fly back into the heavens as a voice comes out of the heavens. The audible voice of God. This would have been extremely powerful. Extremely powerful. You remember God when he spoke audibly from Mount Sinai? You remember what the people said? God, God speaks audibly from Mount Sinai, and the people said this to Moses. They said, they said, they were trembling with fear, and they said, Moses, let not God speak with us, lest we die. The audible voice of God. What could this moment that we're reading about, what could it have been like? This is a powerful moment as God speaks from heaven for all to hear, you are my beloved son, and in you I'm well pleased. Next verse, verse 12. Immediately, the Spirit drove him into the wilderness. Now we're getting into his temptation. The Spirit of God drives Jesus, drives him into the wilderness. Jesus was a man driven by the Holy Spirit. Where did the Spirit drive him? To big preaching engagements and fame, right? No. No. It drove him straight into the wilderness to be tested, to be tempted. Maybe we should learn from that. Why? He was driven in the wilderness to be tempted by Satan. Verse 13. And he was there in the wilderness 40 days, tempted by Satan, and was with the wild beast, and the angels ministered to him. So imagine it 40 days, tempted by Satan. The other gospel accounts tell us that he, he's fasting during this time. I've seen a guy do a 40-day fast, and you get, you get frail, and you get skinny. So can you imagine there, in the wilderness, 40 days, skinny, frail, battling Satan with temptations in the wilderness. It says he was with the wild beast right there. He's with the wild beast. This speaks of his isolation and the danger of the place where he was, humanly speaking. After the 40 days, it says that the angels ministered to him. They, it means they served Jesus. It probably means that they served him food at the end of his fast. And I love this. I love this that the angels are even mentioned right here. You see the angels coming to Christ in the midst of his temptation. I love it. Because it just seems like all through the Gospels, the angels are just so interested in the Son of God. They're so interested in Jesus. So imagine it. Innumerable companies of angels. And I don't mean cute little naked babies playing harps. Innumerable companies of angels. The same angels that when John the Baptist's dad saw him, he trembled with fear. He was deeply distressed. Innumerable companies of angels. And and they, they are just enamored with the Son of God. They can't get enough of Him. They're always looking into what he's, what he's doing. So think, think about this. They're, they're amazed. The angels are amazed that their, their king, their lord, that they have worshipped for all of eternity, has become a man. And they're amazed by this. So as you read through the Gospels, you see that the, the angels are there telling Joseph and Mary that he's coming. That he's going to be born through them. There are Multitudes of angels at his birth rejoicing that the Son of God has been born into the world in Bethlehem. They're there. The angels are there at his resurrection. They were the ones saying, What? He ain't here. The tomb's empty. They were there at his ascension on high. They were here from this angle on earth telling him, Hey, he's ascended and he's going to come back. And then they were there in heaven to receive him back into heaven. The angels, they're just they are enamored over Christ. Peter in 1 Peter chapter 1. Says that they love, they love to look into the salvation that Christ Jesus accomplished. And here we have them right in the midst of Jesus' baptism and temptation, and they're there and they're ministering to him. They're, they're just enamored by him, they're astonished at him. And here's what's awesome we get a glimpse into the baptism of Jesus. And to the temptation of Jesus that tells us everything, all this awesome, glorious truth about who he is. Let us be like the angels, angels astonished over Christ Jesus and who he is. Here's what I want to do. We're going to look, we're going to, okay, that's just your plain sense, okay? And what we're about to do, we're going to walk in and just kind of pull out some astonishing uh, truths about God about Christ from this passage okay so let me start by doing this now this is at the bottom of the front side of that sheet okay we're still there at the bottom of the front side of that sheet okay we're gonna begin by zooming out and we're gonna see this picture of the majesty of God that's seen in this passage right here okay we're gonna zoom out and see something amazing here's what we're gonna see our glorious triune God it's on your sheet there Our glorious triune God and what I mean by that is God is a Trinity our God is is the Trinity. Now, this is an unexplainable mystery that I'm about to explain to you in five minutes. Somebody say, good luck. Okay? What, what should happen when you see this? Okay? We can't skip it. It's just like right here, so obvious and beautiful. Okay? So we can't skip it. Well, you ought to just see the majesty of God. Don't get all weird on me about the Trinity. You ought to see the majesty of God in this. Okay? The majesty of God. Think about this. Right here in this passage, we've got God the Son. Being baptized and tempted. We've got God the Holy Spirit descending out of heaven. We've got God the Father speaking audibly from heaven. Now, God is one. I said God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. But God is one. Deuteronomy 6.4 says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. God is three persons. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And yet He's one God. One God. Imagine reading Mark 1, 9-11. Okay, imagine it with me. You're reading this passage for the first time. And you see this name, Jesus. And you think, who is Jesus? And after deep studying God's Word, you find out Jesus is God. And everybody who deeply studies God's Word rightly will see Jesus is God. And you see that, okay? So you got, okay, Jesus is God. You see it. And then you keep reading in this passage, Mark 1, 9 through 13, and you see Holy Spirit. You say, who's that? And after deep studying God's Word, you say, he's God. And then you keep reading, you see this voice from heaven. You find out that's the Father speaking from heaven. And you start to do a deep study in God's Word. You say, who is that? And you find out he's God. God Almighty. And then you start to think, okay, so there's three God's. There's three gods. And then you go, no, deep studying God's word. You go, no, 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 there's one God. There's only one God. Deuteronomy 6, 4. The Lord is one. And then by this time, your brain is fried. And you don't know what to do. And your brain should be fried because God is glorious. This is what this doctrine should teach you. God is glorious beyond your comprehension. He's beyond your comprehension. Beware. Listen to me. Beware of anyone. Who gives you a cute little, easy to understand explanation of God. Especially this aspect of God. Okay, so your brain's fried. Your brain's fried. And you go to a friend. Okay, you say, help me understand this. Trinity, this is amazing. Help me understand this. And your friend, instead of sticking to the Bible and telling you that God is incredible and he's beyond your comprehension, he gives you a cute little analogy. He says, oh, it's easy to understand. It's like a three-leaf clover. Okay? And here's the problem with that. The Bible. Okay? The problem is the Bible. Here's the problem. Three-leaf clover makes God a third. You know, the Son is a third of God. The Spirit's a third of God. The Father's a third of God. But not the case in the Bible, right? The Bible makes it clear that each person of the Godhead is 100% God. God the Son, 100% God. Spirit, 100% God. Father, 100%. 100% God. And you say, well, that makes 300%. It doesn't make sense. And I say, my brain's fried. He's God Almighty. One God. Okay, so you say, "I'll forget that guy. You go to another friend. And the next friend says, oh, man, that's easy to understand. Let me tell you something. Here, here's, here's how you can understand it. You know, the Father became the Son. And then the Son became the Holy Spirit. Problem? Bible. Specifically, Mark 1, 9-11. Why? They're all here. God the Son, God the Father, God the Holy Spirit. We see them all right here at once. All three persons of the Godhead. All right here in this passage. One did not become another to become another. This doesn't line up with the Scriptures. Or they might say something like this. Well, I'm one person. And I'm a father. I have a son. And I'm a son. I have a father. And I have a spirit. Problem? Bible. Mark 1, 9-11 does not give you this picture of one God that just has three different titles. No, this is beyond your comprehension. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, one God. This is amazing. It's mind-bending. Be astonished. God is glorious beyond your comprehension. Mark 1, 9-11. Okay, now let's move on because here's the deal. I don't believe that this passage, the primary intent of this passage, is to teach you about the Trinity. It's just there so clear, okay? I believe that this passage is primarily meant to exalt Jesus to you. The focus here is Christ Jesus, okay? And this is on the back side of your sheet. Jesus is the focus. What do you mean? Think about where we've been with the first 13 verses of Mark, just exalt Jesus to you, Okay. Mark exalts Jesus. What does he say? He titles this book, The Beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. It's about him. John the Baptist exalting Jesus. He says, there's one coming after me who's mightier than I. What about the Holy Spirit? Focused on Jesus. He descends out of heaven onto Christ Himself. What about God the Father? Focused on Jesus. You are my beloved Son in whom I'm well please. And you have the whole invisible realm of good and evil angels focused on Jesus. You got Satan focused on Jesus in verse 13. You've got angels, the good angels coming to minister and focused on Jesus. All the focus is on Christ. And if I'm going to say that, I might as well say this again, as we've said in many times past, Jesus is the focus of the whole Bible. John chapter 5, verse 38 through 40. You see that really clear. Jesus comes to some men who search the Scriptures all the time. And He looks at them and He says, These are they which testify of Me. These Scriptures are about Me. Have you ever wondered why there's four Gospels? Have you ever wondered that? Why is there four Gospels? We don't get four Judges or four Genesises. We four Gospels. Why? This is about Him. This is about Christ, okay? In fact, Jesus is the focus from everlasting to everlasting and all the history in between. Colossians chapter 1 says He's before all things. He's the focus of eternity past. Colossians 1 also says all things were created by Him and for Him. He's the focus of all of history. And in Colossians 1, it says He's going to redeem all things to Himself and reconcile all things to Himself. He's the focus of all of eternity, future. Christ is the focus in this passage and in all of history. And here's the deal. All throughout Jesus' lifetime on this earth, there was misunderstanding and deceptions about who Jesus was. You see it as you read through Mark. You read through Mark, Mark four forty one. They said this. They said to one another, who could this be that even the wind and the sea obey him? Who could this be that even the wind and the sea obey There's this, who is this kind of feel? By the time you get to Mark chapter 8, Jesus says this. He looks, at, he looks at the disciples, he says, who do men say that I am? And they say, and then some people say you're Elijah. Some say you're the prophet. Some say you're John the Baptist risen from the dead. And Jesus turns to him, and says, who do you say that I am? Who do you say that Jesus is. It was important to Christ that you would know who He is. It's important to God, God the Holy Spirit, who wrote Mark. It's important that you know who He is. In this, these verses, verse one through thirteen, and our passage in, in particular, verses nine through thirteen, that's what it's meant to do—to show you this is who He is. Mark makes no mistake about it. This whole book is exalting Jesus to you. He starts it calling Him the Son of God. John the Baptist calls Him Lord, the Mighty One. And right here in our passage, He's called the Son of God. They're not making any joke about this, okay? So He's not just a great leader. He's not just a revolutionary. He's not just a good man. He's not just a prophet of old. He's the Son of God according to Mark chapter 1, verse 9 through 13. So here's what I want you to do. When you read Mark 1, 9-13, excuse me, Mark 1, 9 through 9-13, when you read that, you need to know that it is not primarily about us. But think about what happens. Now, now, let me say this. I'm going to give a disclaimer in a minute. It's not primarily about us, and here's what I mean. When I read about Jesus' baptism, it's not just an example for me to be baptized. It's not the, it's not the only reason, okay? Or... When I read about his temptation, that's not just a section of the scripture that teaches me how to face temptation. Now, God is so glorious in his wisdom that there are primary points. And then there's all that, man, you can get so much, rich, so many riches, so much treasure out of God's word that it can affect all kinds of different things and teach you all kinds of different things. That's true. But think about what happens. I, I've gone through a season of my life and every time I would read about Jesus's temptation, you know what the only thing I would think of was? This teaches me how to battle temptation. And I must teach others how to battle temptation. Especially in the other accounts. Matthew 4, Luke 4, Jesus' temptation. And when you, you read those, and it says that he's tempted, and he's got a verse ready, memorized, and he uses the word of God to fight temptation. And that's the only thing I would get out of those passages, okay? heres I still teach that. I still teach, memorize the Word of God, and I still do it from the temptation of Jesus in Matthew chapter 4. I still do that. So I'm not saying throw that out. I'm just telling you there's a primary reason that these are given, and it's to exalt Jesus to you. It's to tell you something about the Son of God. It's the primary reason. so, as we think about this passage, verse 9 through 13, what are some things that we can know about Christ Jesus how can we know Jesus more through this passage and I've got three things I want to pull out first thing we can know about Christ Jesus divine authority let me define that by divine I mean Jesus is God by authority I mean Jesus is the king and he's the ruler of all divine authorities God and he's the king and ruler of all. Now, where is that at in this passage? Where do we see that in this passage right here? Here it is. A sky rips apart and a voice comes from heaven. It says, that's my son. This, he's, he is declared by the Father to be the Son of God. And what does it mean to be the Son of God? It carries with it the weight of divine authority. He is God and he has all of the authority. He's the Son of God. Mark said it in verse one. I keep saying that. Okay, he said it there in Mark, and at the beginning of this gospel, Mark, from the very beginning, verse one, says he's the Son of God. At the end of this gospel, the Roman centurion says, "Truly, that's the Son of God." In Mark Mark fifteen thirty nine, Jesus Himself in this gospel proclaimed Himself to be the Son of God. And listen to this, and this kills me. I hear things sometimes about people saying. Well Jesus never clearly he never really makes it plain that He's God, and it kills me. Listen to this. Listen to Mark 14 verse 61. His enemies look at him and say this, "Are you the Christ, the Son of the blessed?" Listen to this response. "I am." Is that clear? That's clear. He's a son of God. And that's what this book is doing. He's showing you he's a son of God. And I'm telling you that that carries along with it divine authority. It means he's God and it means he's king. Okay. The, the, The title of the son of God carries that sort of weight. Okay. So why is Jesus called the son of God? Why does God, the father publicly address Jesus as the son of God? Think of the multitudes Think about them standing there on, the, on the, the banks of the Jordan River. They're hearing John's preaching. They're seeing John being uh, baptizing people. And when they hear a voice from heaven say, that's my beloved son, what do you think ran into their mind? What do you think came to their mind? And if they knew their Old Testament, I'm saying what would come to their mind when they hear Son of God is divine authority. He's God and He's the King of the universe. Okay, He's not just a mere man. He's God. He's not an exalted angel. He's God and He's the King that was the long expected King that He was going to come. That's who we're talking about. I see this. Hold your place and go to Isaiah chapter 7. Isaiah chapter 7. When they heard Him declared to be the Son of God, What came to their mind? Look at Isaiah chapter 7. I'm going to read verse 14. Therefore the Lord Himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call His name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. The virgin will conceive. Who's that talking about? And bear a son. A son. And he will be called God with us. He's God. When they hear the Son of God, they hear this is Emmanuel. This is God with us. If they knew their Old Testament. Look at uh, chapter 9, verse 6. For unto us a child is born. Unto us a son. A son is given. The government will be upon His shoulder and His name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God. There's a Son going to be called Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of His government and peace, there shall be no end. Upon the throne, that's a king. Upon the throne, that's a king. The throne of David and over His kingdom to order it and establish it with judgment. And justice from that time forward, even forever, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. So here you have that. When they hear the Son of God, they've got the Scriptures in their mind. They hear this is the this is divine. He is God in authority. He is the King. The government rests upon His shoulders. Now, back in Mark 1. So if you go with me back to Mark 1 verse 9. So He's declared to be, Jesus is declared to be in Mark 1 verse 9 through 13, by the father, he's declared to be the son of God, meaning he is God and he's the king with all authority. Now, maybe this is maybe in Mark. Think about this with me. OK, in Mark chapter 11, you remember the, the his uh, the religious leaders, the Jewish leaders of time come to him and they say, by what authority are you doing all these things? So here's the one that's been declared the son of God with all his divine authority. And here these men come in Mark 11. And they say, by what authority are you doing all these things? And how does Jesus answer them? He says, uh, let me ask you a question. John's baptism. He points them back to what we're reading about. John's baptism. Is that from God or man? And it's as if he's saying, what do you mean by what authority? Do you not remember my baptism? When the sky ripped apart and the Spirit of God descended on me and a voice came from heaven and said, Son of God. It's in Mark chapter 11. What else can we know about Jesus from this passage? Next, next thought here. What can we know about Jesus? Jesus' is sinless perfection. Jesus is sinless and perfect. He's righteous. Jesus never once for a moment had a sinful thought. He never once spoke a sinful word. He never once had a sinful emotion. He never once had a sinful action. He is the righteous one. He's perfectly righteous. Now, where is that at in this passage? And I can show you the sinless perfection and righteousness of Jesus by answering two very common questions that normally come from this passage. Here's my two questions. Why was Jesus baptized? That happens a lot. It's a legitimate question, right? Why was Jesus baptized? Second question, why did the Spirit lead Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan? Now, I think in answering these questions, I can show you the righteousness of Christ, the sinless perfection of Christ Jesus, okay? So let's start with why was Jesus baptized? Why was he baptized? Jesus was baptized, yes, to identify himself with with the sinners that he was going to save, okay? Yes, but also to exalt his sinlessness. He was baptized to exalt his sinlessness. Think about it. John the Baptist was preaching a baptism of repentance. Did Jesus have any reason to repent? No. Think about it. All the people were coming to be baptized by John. It says they were confessing their sins. Did Jesus have anything to confess? Any sins to confess? And the answer is obviously no. So then why was he baptized? Why did he come to be baptized? And I want to tell you that John the Baptist actually had the exact same question that's in your mind. And we see that in Matthew 3. You don't have to flip that. I'm going to read it to you. Matthew three thirteen. Listen to this. Same scenario. Just a different account. Then Jesus came from Galilee to John at the Jordan to be baptized by him. And listen to the question in John's mind. Why? Why, Why do that? John tried to prevent him. Saying, I need to be baptized by you. And are you coming to me? See, Jesus had zero sin. He had nothing to repent of. And John the Baptist knew that. The reaction of John the Baptist to Jesus desiring to be baptized with him, it screams the truth that Christ Jesus is righteous. Multitudes come to John confessing their sins. Even the ones standing up on the shore not confessing their sins. He says, you brood of vipers, Repent. And then here comes one before him, and he has nothing to confess. And John the Baptist knows it. He knows that. So then, why was Jesus baptized? And you read the next verse in Matthew 3, it's verse 15, and Jesus tells you the reason. He says, To fulfill, to fulfill all righteousness. What does that mean? Jesus was baptized to fulfill all the righteousness. To do all that was right as a man. Exactly what the Father wanted him to do. To do all that pleased the Father. And therefore he was baptized. He fulfilled all righteousness. And this was a part of it. He fulfilled all righteousness. Now in Solomon's lifetime, Solomon said this. He said, there's not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. And here comes Jesus and became that man who does good and never sins, the righteous one on this earth. Now, question, wasn't it humiliating? Wouldn't it be a humiliating thing for Jesus, the Son of God, to go right into a sinner's baptism? Wouldn't that be a humiliating thing? And the answer is yes. And this is the amazing part. Jesus was obedient to the Father, even to the point of humiliation. A few years later, he would go in obedience to the Father. He would go to a death, a humiliating death on a cross. He's the righteous one. Listen to Philippians 2.8. He humbled himself. He humbled himself as he went into the Jordan. And this verse is not talking about the Jordan. He humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. This humble step of Jesus into the Jordan River was was a step toward Calvary where He would go and humble Himself and die for our sins. Jesus is the sinless, righteous One. And this is the reason God the Father says this about Him. He doesn't just say, You're my beloved Son. He says, In whom I am well pleased. I'm well pleased. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine the multitudes? And this rocked me more than anything else in studying this. Just multitudes of people. Don't let it be surface level. Think about multitudes of people. I mean, people from all over were coming to John. And they're coming and they're confessing their sins. And imagine people broken over their sins for whatever reason. Sexual morality. Girl steps up. Broken over it. Her sin, And she's hearing this preaching of John the Baptist saying, repent because there's one coming after me who's mightier than I. So can you imagine these people coming up one after another? One after another, just confessing their sins before God. And then one steps up and he's got nothing to say. So God the Father speaks in his stead and says, well pleased. I'm well pleased in this one. And so for thousands of years, God Almighty has looked on humans. And the only thing he could say is, every intent of the thought of their heart is only evil continually. That's all he could say. And then a human comes this one for the first time he looks and he says, I'm well pleased. I'm well pleased with this man. God in the flesh, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now we're still talking about Jesus' sinless perfection. Jesus' sinless perfection. We answered one question. Why was he baptized? I hope I answered it. Second question. Why was Jesus led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan? Why? Why did the Spirit of God do that? Okay. Here's what happened. His baptism declared him to be the sinless one by the Father. Well pleased. His temptation proves it. That He's the sinless one in whom the Father is well pleased Before this battle in the wilderness, Satan had never met a man that he could not tempt and, and lead them astray into sin. Now he's met such a man. The Lord Jesus Christ. Satan gives Jesus everything he has for 40 days. But Christ comes out just as sinless and pure and clean as before He went in. Jesus is the Holy One. Victorious over over all of Satan's schemes. Satan laid before Jesus all that is in this world. And 1 John 2.16 says all that is in this world is the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. And Satan laid it all before Jesus. When Satan laid that before the first man, Adam, he fell, he bit, and he rebelled against God. Remember Genesis chapter 3? It says they saw that the tree, the tree, they saw it was good for food, lust of the flesh. They said it was was pleasant to the eyes, lust of the eyes. It saw it was desirable to make one wise, the pride of life. And he bit on that temptation and he rebelled against Almighty God. This is all laid before Jesus and he's victorious over all temptations. Tempted just like you and me and yet without sin. Jesus was heralded by John as king. Jesus was heralded by God the Father as King, right here in our passage. And the King must be able to conquer His enemies, and so He led, He was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to do battle. 1 John 3, 8 says this, For this purpose, the Son of God was manifested. Why? That He might destroy the works of the devil. That He might destroy the works of the devil. Of the devil. And this battle in the wilderness was a step in that direction. Christ Jesus comes out sinless, righteous, perfect. What else can we learn about Jesus from this passage? What can we know about him? I want to know the Savior. What can we know about him? Jesus' humanity. Jesus is fully God, and yet he became fully man. He's not half God, half man. He didn't leave his godness and take on madness. He retained his godness. He's fully God, fully man. 100% God, 100% man. You say, there you go with that percentage again. 200%, doesn't make sense. Yeah, this is a mind-bending reality about Jesus. Fully God, fully man. Now, where do you see that in this passage? You see his humanity in that he identifies himself with a sinner's baptism. He identifies himself with sinful man in his baptism. He identifies himself with sinful man in his temptation. Hebrews 4.15 even says that as a man, Jesus, he can look on with sympathy at your human weakness because he was tempted in every way as you are. He was tempted at every point just like you are. So this is amazing. God Almighty adds human nature to his divine nature. The Son of God becomes the Son of Man. This is what went down. Now, here's another avenue in this passage to see the humanity of Jesus. is to answer this common question. It's a common question. Why did the Holy Spirit descend upon Jesus? And that's a legitimate question, right? Because Jesus is God. The Holy Spirit is God. They've been been one for all of eternity. So why would the Holy Spirit descend upon Jesus? And I want to answer that question. It's true that the Son of God has been one with the Spirit of God for all of eternity, but do you realize this? Think about this, okay? Something amazing has now happened. God Almighty, the Son, God the Son has taken human nature onto Himself, and God the Holy Spirit descends on the human nature of Jesus to fulfill this amazing ministry that He's about to walk into. Let me read a quote real quick. From R.C. Sproul. He said this. What was the significance of the Holy Spirit's descent on him? The Spirit anointed the human nature of Jesus. So here you have Jesus. All his divine authority. You've got his sinless perfection. He's righteous. And he's fully man. He's humanity. Okay? Now this raises, if you believe me on this, that Christ Jesus became a man. This raises a massively important question. Questions, why? Why would the Son of God, who has all divine authority, who's perfectly righteous in every way, perfectly sinless, why would he take on flesh? Why would he be born into the world that he created as a man? Why would he do that? It's because he came to save us. Christ Jesus came. This, him becoming a man is a rescue mission where he comes to save us. One day, he will go on to identify himself with sinful man in a much deeper way than baptism in water. He will be baptized in suffering. Listen to Luke chapter 12 verse 50. I have a baptism to be baptized with and how distressed I am until it is accomplished. Just a few years after these events and His baptism in the water, He would be baptized into our sins. And and therefore, He would be baptized into the punishment of God that is not His own. He became man to save us. Why would He take on human flesh? Because the one who was tempted in the wilderness and remained victorious over sin would go on to carry on to Himself all the sinful things of failures in temptation of you and me he would just carry it on to himself all the sinful failures that we have he took on flesh he became a man and i want you to think about this on the day that he carried our sins the time that he carried our sins he did not hear the loving affirmation you're my son my beloved son in whom i'm well pleased That's a glorious, a a a warming affirmation at his baptism. But when he when he went into the baptism of suffering, he did not hear, "You are my beloved son, in whom I'm well pleased." Instead, the scripture shows him looking to God, saying, "My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from helping me?" This is what happens instead. He came to save. He came out of the waters. In our passage, He came out glorious, right? Glorious affirmation out of the waters. He comes out of those waters, sky ripped apart, Spirit of God descends, voice comes booming out of heaven. Okay, this is glorious affirmation that He's the Son of God. And after Christ Jesus died for our sins, He was risen from the grave. Glorious affirmation that He is who He said He was. Romans chapter 1 verse 4 says He's declared to be the Son of God. With power, according to the Spirit of Holiness, by the resurrection from the dead, and so we have all this. Why did he become a human? To save us. And in Mark chapter one, verse nine through thirteen, we have the very beginnings of a may of an amazing ministry that led straight to the cross of Christ. Now I've got to finish this by making an application to this passage. Okay. Now what I have on your sheet an application. Is to rest in the sinless perfection and righteousness of Jesus. Now I prayed, I didn't know what to do about an application because I had so many in my mind. And I prayed, God, I don't know which one of these. I was asking Liv, which one to choose? Because I want to talk by one, I want to go to give you your 15 applications up here. Okay? But I had a bunch of them. Here's some that came to mind, okay? I, I thought, here's an application embrace times of trial and testing. Are you in a trial right now? Are you in testing, right? Are you being tested? You ever thought that maybe the Spirit of God led you into that wilderness? Just like He led Christ into it? Let me give you another one. Christ Jesus was empowered by the Holy Spirit for His ministry. Cry out to God to pour out His Holy Spirit for your ministry, for His glory. A third one. Know Jesus. Just know Him. Pursue a deeper knowledge of Jesus. Why do I say that? Because remember what I was saying? How this passage is not just about how you face temptation, but it's to exalt the Lord Jesus who rules over the tempter. Remember I said that? I remember the first time that I started reading through the gospel, and I said, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to write down everything I can know about my Savior. That's all I'm going to do. I'm going to spend this time, this time of my life, reading through the gospel. Every time I see something, I don't care if it's just he has compassion. I don't care if it's he just, he just read their minds. He knew what they were thinking. I don't care what it is. I was writing it down. I just want to know my Savior. And that was sweet to my soul. That's a good application. Well, what about find comfort in this truth? That he sympathizes with you in your human weakness. Why? Well, because he was tempted in every point like you are, yet without sin. So I thought about all these applications, but then I said, well, I'm not going to mention any of those, So I'm not. Oh, uh, but here's the one I want to mention. Rest in the sinless perfection and righteousness of Jesus. Just, just try, try to go there with me for a minute, okay? Christ Jesus is righteous, right? He is the righteous one, right? Think about our passage. Think about John the Baptist's reaction to Jesus wanting to be baptized. No, you're righteous. You've you got no reason to repent. Okay? Think about Christ saying, I'm here to fulfill all righteousness. He's the righteous one, right? Christ Jesus is. Or think about the Father saying, I'm well pleased. He's the righteous one. Or think about Him going into that wilderness and remaining sinless and perfect and clean. Jesus is the righteous one, right? Rest in his righteousness. You say, what do you mean? How do you do that? How do you know if you're resting in his righteousness? Did you know that the moment that you look to Jesus in faith, you were united to him? This is another mind-bending reality. The moment you look to Jesus in faith, you became in Christ Jesus. In Christ Jesus, that phrase, if you read Ephesians 1, in the first 13 verses, eight times it says in Christ Jesus. That's where it places you. If you're in Christ here, in the beloved, in Christ Jesus, in the Lord. You are united to Him the moment you look to Him in faith. Now what does that mean? In and of yourself, in and of yourself, John the Baptist will look at you and he say, You viper, you viper, Repent. Of your sin. And show show fruits worthy of repentance. But what does he say in Christ Jesus? In Christ Jesus, you are just as pure and sinless as Christ Jesus Himself. Because you're united to Him. Rest in His sinless perfection. Rest in His righteousness. You know... That you have not fulfilled all righteousness. You know that. You know that you have sinned, all you've done is sin against God. And everything that you deem to be righteous comes before Him as filthy rags. But in Christ Jesus, His righteousness is accredited to you. You're united to Him. You're in Christ Jesus. In and of yourself, God looks on you. In and of yourself, He looks on you and, and He thinks what? Every intent of the thought of his heart is only evil continually. But in Christ Jesus, what does he say? This is my beloved child. This is the one I love. This is my beloved child in whom I am well pleased. Rest in his sinless perfection, his righteousness. You know that you've been defeated by Satan's temptations? And you rebelled against God. But in Christ Jesus, it is credited to you. All the victories over Satan. All the victories over sin. Are you resting in the righteousness of Jesus? Listen to Romans 3.22. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe. Are you resting in Christ Jesus' righteous now how do you know how do you know if you're resting in it how do you know are you experiencing isaiah 61 10 are you experiencing isaiah 61 10 let me read it to you quickly isaiah 61 10 says this i will greatly rejoice in the lord think about what's going on here i will greatly rejoice in the lord my soul shall be joyful in my god why Why? For he has clothed me with garments of salvation. He has covered me with a robe of righteousness. What does it look like to rest in the righteousness of Jesus? It looks like a soul joyful in God because he has covered you with a robe of righteousness. Think about what he's done. You have filthy rags and He's taken your filthy rags and He wore them in your place. And all the punishment of God that you deserve for those filthy rags fell on Him instead. And He took His garments and He placed them on you. Garments of righteousness. A righteous robe placed on you. My soul shall be joyful in my God. Now if you are unconverted, don't rest in Him. Rest is dangerous for you. But listen, if you're here and you're in Christ Jesus, if you're in Christ Jesus, listen to what He says to you. You are my beloved child, and in you I am well pleased. Let's pray. God, I thank You that You give us these These truths in Your Word, God, that You exalt Your Son in our eyes. God, I pray for more, Lord Jesus. God, if there was any glimpse, God, I praise You, God. I know that You have have given me... I asked You to show me Your glory, God, and You've done that. You've given me glimpses of Your glory and Your greatness, God, over and over again. And for anybody else, God, everybody else here who's who's experiencing that, God, where You're just giving them a glimpse of Your glory and who You are and how great You are and it's going past the intellect and it's affecting them in their hearts. God, I just, we pray for more. God, give us more of that. Show us Your glory, Lord. Let us see You. And God, I do pray for every, every child of Yours here that You would teach them, God, that You would give them a soul joyful in You because You've clothed them in a robe of righteousness.